Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, session number nine. This is an extended edition of the podcast recorded on my recent trip to London, and I actually sat down with the leaders of the three top peer-to-peer lenders in the UK. They're all based in London. They're all actually within walking distance of each other. I'm talking about Ratesetter, Funding Circle, and Zopa. So this is really three podcasts in one where um, I'm giving you three separate interviews back-to-back. And we start off with Peter Behrens of Ratesetter. He is the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Ratesetter. And we recorded this interview in his offices. Okay, so I'm here in the Ratesetter offices in London, talking with Peter Behrens from Ratesetter. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Okay, so let's just start off with explaining to the, the audience here you know, what the Ratesetter model is, how you, how you operate. So well, Ratesetter is, is it's a peer-to-peer platform, and we take retail investors, well, our investors are retail savers who take their money and they lend it to individuals on the other side so we're doing consumer unsecured loans of two to twenty five thousand pounds okay so and then what about on the uh, on the uh, investor side like who's your typical investor well typical investors are it's very predominantly individuals and they are as a general rule they are in their early 50s or the average investor is in his early 50s he's got a, a large number a reasonable chunk of savings We're not talking about high net worth people. We're talking about what we like to refer to as the mass affluent, people who are a bit wary of the stock market. They've been in it. They've dabbled in it. They find it volatile and they want somewhere safe to put their savings money. Okay. Okay. So then let's switching back to the borrowers. You, you know, you said 2000 to 25,000 pounds. Is that right? So what, what are the interest rates and what are the loan terms and that sort of thing? So we do loans of, we, you know, six months, 12 months, 18, 24 months, and then three, four, five years. So it's a sort of, it's the general spread of consumer borrowing, if you like, in the, in the short term. The average APRs, they are, are absolutely best, best rates are down at four and a half percent APR, which I suspect is a bit cheaper than you guys have got in the States. Mm-hmm. But the market in the UK is very, very competitive. And it goes up to sort of 12, 13% APR. Okay. But so the foreign. So you don't, yeah. So you, these are really then prime, super prime borrowers. These are people who, you know, they have very, very good credit to because you're obviously you're not you're not if you're topping out at twelve percent, that's not a that's not a high risk borrower. Yeah, there's not a lot of risk premium in there. Right. Um, so no, you're absolutely right. We are. It, it is. It is. It's a prime. It's a prime loan book, and the focus has very much been on a prime basis because we set ourselves up as. An alternative to the to the world of savings, we it's very much a safe, guaranteed return as opposed to a investment which has a riskier attribute to it. So we set up a safety net, if you like, which we when we launched we created this thing called the provision fund, which is a pot of money that exists to protect the lenders from the risk of default and to try to replicate the savings environment to make it an easy thing for the consumer to understand. Okay, so let's just talk about that provision fund. Can you explain how it operates? Because, uh, like, this doesn't—we don't have this in the U.S., and it's something that I, I've found personally fascinating. 
So as I see in your literature, you say that no investor, no lender has lost a penny at a rate setter since, since you guys started. So, so what explains what happens when, uh, when a loan has gone into default that an investor has, has invested in? What's, what's the process? Okay, I'll come on to that in just one second, Peter. But I think just to articulate how the money goes into the fund in the first place, when a borrower takes out a loan, every borrower is categorized by us with their own risk criteria. And a fee is then applied to that borrower's loan, which they contribute into the provision fund. So it, it, it's how we rate for risk. Okay, so it's almost like part of the origination fee goes to the provision fund. Yeah. Exactly right. And that origination fee is flexed based on the risk of the borrower, okay. which enables you to to price the loans. Yep. So when we talked about having a variance in the APR, actually the flex is in that is in is in the provision fund fee. Okay. And so what happens from a lender's perspective if 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 they've got a problem with a loan is if the lender is expecting their monthly payment to arrive in the morning from the borrower but the borrower doesn't make that payment, the provision fund will bridge that gap. It will pay the interest and the capital that the lender is expecting from the borrower. And it will pay that over to the lender, and the provision fund will then go and pursue the borrower for the missed payment. So, like even on the on the day itself, that the borrower is the investor is expecting money. On the day itself, there is no time gap. Wow! Because if there's a time gap, you can't tell the lender he's had every penny, and we set ourselves up right. to deliver exactly what the lender expects. Right. Because our view at the time when we looked at the model, we saw that. The conventional model is very much what you guys have got in the States, which is that when you're investing your money into a peer-to-peer platform, you choose the risk category that you're comfortable with. Our view of that was that we were trying to create a, a retail consumer platform that would be available to everybody. But we thought that was a bit of a complicated thing for Joe Blogs on the street to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to have a bottle of cereal and today's a B-risk day. <laughs> you, 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 you have to... And you need you need a lot of financial education to make those decisions, which we felt limited the market we were addressing. Right. So the investor cannot go and cherry pick the loans on your on your platform. No. The the the, the lender arrives. He he has two choices. Choice one is: Do I want to lend my money for one month, one year, three years, or five years? And choice two is: Once I've decided that, do I want to try and set my own rate, or do I just go in at the best rate available in the market? And so we, we operate a genuine order-driven exchange okay. where you can price you can put your money in at a price and the market will either move to hit you or you'll not get your money lent. Right, okay. So you say you want you want seven percent, then you might not hit as many loans as if you say. Well yeah, exactly, it might just take you longer. So if right. a market, you know, for example, our one year bond conventionally trades at about 3%. So if you go and place your order at 5%, you're never going to get your money lent because new money will perpetually come in and refill the market at 3%. Right. But if you put it at 3.1, actually the market might dip up one day and you might get your money lent. And it's about trying to right. gauge the demand that's going through the market. We try and make that information available to people. Sure. So let's just, let's just talk about, you said you have one month product. So what, you know, just explain how that works and I mean, that's a, obviously, if you're, if you're saying that, you know, no one's ever lost a penny and you've got a one month product, that's a really attractive proposition for, I mean, I think that'd be great for the US platforms. So how does that work? And you, I, I presume like people can then just, you know, if you're saving for a house or whatever, you can go and throw your money in there and know you can get it back out at a, at a month's notice. That's exactly right. It's a very flexible tool. I mean, it's, um, it's effectively a one month savings bond. So you put your money in on the, first day of the month and a month later you can have it straight back again with 
the interest it's earned. So then you can automatically reinvest the... Yeah, the, the, the system automatically reinvests it for people. So most people that put money into that monthly market leave it there for longer than one month. Right. But it works very well for people that know they've got a bit of spare money, but they know they've got something to spend it on in time coming up. Your example of the house is entirely entirely the sort of thing that we see happening. We see people knowing they've sold a house and they put, put a bit of it in the rolling market knowing they'll need to withdraw it in a few months' time when they're buying another one. And it's a very liquid and flexible tool. Right. Okay. So, so let's just talk a little bit about loan volume. What can, you know, what was your, what was your volume in, in last year, 2013? So we lent 104 million pounds in 2013. Okay. And what's your, what's your expectation for this, for this year? And Do you want my expectation or my hope? <laughs> uh, throw us out both if you want. I, I think, I think we should comfortably do 200 and, 20 million and I'd love to do 250 million. Okay. So you're still, you're on the, you're on the doubling every year kind of growth path at least. I hope so. I mean, at our current run rate, we're currently doing 16, 17 million pounds a month. So, you know, that comfortably gets you to 180. So um, we don't need to grow that dramatically to get right. to the 220s, 250s from where we're at now. Right. So those numbers I've given you might be conservative. Okay, but I don't want to be talking to you next year, and you go. You said you'd do this. <laughs> always, good, always good to be conservative. Yes. So then, what about? Let's just talk. I mean, let's talk about your defaults. Um, you know, obviously, it's 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 going to be reasonably low considering you got the provision fund. But can you provide? Like, what is your default rate today? What is your annualized default rate? What are those numbers? So what the what the provision fund has paid out so far and not recovered is point four five percent of what we've lent so far. Mm-hmm. Now, because as we just talked about, our, our rate of growth has been quite good over the last couple of years, what we've lent is a slightly disingenuous number because right. that means that we've, a lot of those loans haven't had a chance to go bad yet. Mm-hmm. So I think when we when we actually look at our credit data and we analyze how our book is performing, we think that bad debt number is going to come out nearer to 1, 1.1%. Right. Okay. Okay, that's fair enough. So, on that note, then are you, you're obviously these are these are really prime borrowers. I mean, that's one percent default rate is kind of a an A grade borrower in in the US. Are you like as you grow, are you going to find enough borrowers at that level? And what, what at what point do you think you're going to need to delve into a, a more risky loan pool? I think for the time being, there are plenty of borrowers available to us. I think that the provision fund model enables us to delve into a slightly riskier loan pool. But what we want to do is make sure we grow cautiously and understand the credit as we do it. I actually gave a talk yesterday at a conference in which I talked about growth being good, but sustainable growth being a great deal better. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that we don't take any risks with our investors' money that jeopardize the premise of what we are trying to set out to achieve with rate setting. Right, right. Good point. So, so are you guys are you guys cash, cash flow positive, profitable? Where where are you at in that? Yes, aspect? we are. We are cash flow positive and profitable, <laughs> and we are yeah, and have been since last year. Okay, okay. So then on on the investor front, you, you obviously you, you've talked a couple of times about you know, this is a retail investor. These are individuals. Do you get much interest? Like in the US, we all we all know about how much the hedge fund community and the institutional investors are 
flocking to this industry. Are you seeing that in the UK or not so much? Yes, we are seeing interest and we're talking to a few people who are certainly interested in the space. I think one of the challenges in the UK up until now has been uh, the regulatory picture has been a little bit more complicated for those institutions to get involved right. because it hasn't been quite clear what they need to do to get involved. Mm-hmm. As the industry becomes regulated, which is going to be the case on the 1st of April, and we're getting some sensible regulation coming in, which I think is going to make this picture a great deal clearer. And there are, as I mentioned, a couple of investors here who I think are going to make it happen and are going to go through the hurdles and the hoops, which will set a very clear precedent and a very clear path and make it a great deal easier for others to join the process. So you're, you, are, you are open to these larger institutions then? We are open to them. I mean, I think we are very keen that rate setter remains very available to the man on the street because we believe strongly that diversity of funding is a very important thing and we'd like to be a consumer business because... Uh, philosophically, we, we think we're adding real value to the consumer's life. Therefore, doing that for them is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. But equally, we can we understand and acknowledge that institutional money comes with a great deal of advantages too. Yeah. So, last question: Are, are, you, are there any opportunities for US investors in rate setter? I think there are opportunities today if they can face doing some work. I think if they want to hold off for really not a very long time, possibly a few weeks then I think there are definitely going to be opportunities emerging in the very, very short term. When you say that, that, is that because of the regulations and because the different vehicles are going to come invest on your platform? Yeah, I think so. And I think at the moment we're doing a lot of work here to understand the best way to make these things happen and the easiest way to make these things happen. And I think once we've got through that, and the point is, is we're going to get through there pretty soon. Right. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks for your time, Peter. Pleasure. Okay. Okay, next up on our tour of London is our Funding Circle and sat down with Samir Desai, who is the co-founder and CEO of Funding Circle. Now, keep in mind that uh, they are unique insofar as they actually operate in both the UK and the US, but uh, we sat down in their London offices. Unfortunately, Samir didn't have a lot of time, but I uh, was able to record this short interview with him. Okay, so I'm here in the Funding Circle office with Samir Desai. Welcome to the podcast, Samir. Hey, thanks. Okay, so let's just start off with um, talking about the Funding Circle model. Can you just describe what you do for the US uh, listener? Yeah, so Funding Circle is a marketplace similar to Lending Club and Prosper that you're very familiar with that allows individuals, um, institutions, government, basically anyone to lend money directly to small businesses. We launched in the UK in August 2010. And we've lent around um, £240 million, so over $400 million in that market. In um, late 2013, we acquired a business called Endurance Lending Network, which is a, you know, was a U.S. peer-to-peer lender, and we now operate in the U.S. market as well. So what are the, what are the differences between, those, between how you operate in the U.S. and how you operate in the U.K.? Um, so the U.K. platform is available to anyone um, at the moment. In the U.S., um, we have a few restrictions on who we can accept. So at the moment, that's limited to accredited investors and institutions. In due course, we expect to um, to launch a, um, a fractional marketplace in the U.S. where investors can buy parts of loans 
Um, but at the moment, it's limited to um, a fund and a whole loan marketplace. Okay. So then let's just switch to the UK. Like, who, who are your investors in the UK? What's a typical profile? Typical profile of an investor in the UK is um, it's, it, it really does range, but we have about 28,000 active retail investors. Um, it's normally a 45-year-old male, um, <laughs> slightly skewed in that way, right. but we have all ages lending. Um, and on average, they lend about £8,000 um, to you know, over 100 businesses. Okay. And what, and what sort of returns are they enjoying? So 70% of investors that are um, diversified across at least 100 businesses are earning um, over 6% a year, um, and the majority getting in the 6 to 8% range, net of fees and defaults and everything. Okay, okay. Okay, so then what, and, and you're, you're getting, like, talk about defaults a little bit. What, what are the default rates that you're experiencing now, and how, how are they tracking? So the, the, the loss rate that we publish on the site, the overall default rate, is about 1.4%. But obviously, with a, with a fast-growing loan book, right. um, you know that number is it, it's to some extent slightly meaningless. Um, <laughs> on an on an annualized basis, our loss rates are about one point eight percent a year, okay. um, and we're aiming for loss rates of about two point two percent a year. So we're well within the estimates that that, that we publish. And what we found um, in the same way as um, a number of US platforms is that over time we've got better and better at credit assessment through better use of data, better use of models, um, and our loss rates are coming down. Right. All the time across cohorts. Right. Okay. Okay. So one thing that I just wanted to touch on that you, you, you talked about at the Altfi conference yesterday, you you talked about you're tracking the businesses that you actually reject. And so how, how are you tracking them and, and what are you learning from, from tracking them? Um, so, you know, we, we, we started Funding Circle in a very, very prudent way and we continue to manage the loan book, you know, very prudently. So um, we expect we... In the early days, we accepted a very small portion of the businesses that apply to us, mm-hmm. um, and that's actually what we're doing in the United States as well. So, and what we've been able to do is build up a vast data set, um, not just of businesses that we've accepted, but also ones that we've we've declined and that didn't meet our criteria. And through uses of databases in the UK, just general tracking of the um, whether a business has gone insolvent or not, and and the other debt that they've been able to take out, we've been able to extrapolate and learn quite a lot about a lot more about whether we should have been turning down those businesses or, or not. But, but obviously, like that, that's kind of part of the secret sauce <laughs> to some extent. Um, but it, it has been a very valuable exercise. And, and one of the other things we've been able to do is, which is very exciting, is build a database you know, that we call CODAS of, of every single UK business and layer on more and more data. Um, and that's something we're looking to replicate in the US as well. Okay. Okay. So do you think as you grow, are you are you sort of allowing more businesses that you might not have not have put on the platform uh, when you first started are you getting a little bit more you're expanding your offerings so to speak yeah definitely i mean what we've what we did in the uk um in the second half of last year is we added a new risk grade um because we had been able to model out a set of businesses um that we felt were attractive and had predictable risk characteristics mm-hmm. um, and we expect to continue to be able to do that you know over time in a very cautious way okay okay are you so what are you getting right now do you feel like you have do you have enough investors do you need more borrowers where are you where, where's the balance in the marketplace right now um, so it's different in our different markets so in the US I think we um, we have more capital I would say although um, we're starting to ramp up marketing efforts quite aggressively there and you know, all the signs so far is that that market will grow you know, the US will grow much faster than we ever did in the UK. In the U- UK, um, we probably have a dearth of investors. 
we are putting in place mechanisms to allow institutional investors to start to, to lend here as well. But, you know, because of the, and, and I think it's a high quality problem where, you know, in both the US and UK, we're doing a lot more lending than we had tar- we were targeted to do. And therefore, we, we, you know, we haven't, ne- we hadn't necessarily planned as much to get in right. as many investors as we needed to. Right. So are you, are you taking on institutional investors now or are you, are you just ramping up for, for that? We are, we are ramping up for that. In the US, we accept institutional investors at the moment. Right. Um, and in the UK, um, we will, we will start to do that in the, in the, in the, over the next two, two months or so. Right. Okay. So then what, let's just talk about the, the, the future. I know you've got to go soon, but let's talk about like, so what you're obviously, you've, you've expanded your brand. You've, you've got, you're now becoming sort of the global SME lending brand. What, what's next for Funding Circle? I mean, you've got, are you going to be moving to new countries? What are you, what, what are the, what's the plan? So, I mean, at the moment, we're very focused on growing the U.S. the U.S. market and continuing to grow the U.K. Mm-hmm. You know, as you, as you said, we, we kind of feel that we're well positioned to become the global SME um, lending marketplace. You know, there's some fierce competition from, um, from some very, very big names that I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I think over the past four years, we've built up um, a very good track record in credit assessment and a very good track record in being able to attract and and market to these these borrowers. So, you know, the focus for the next six months is very much on growing the US um, and continue to grow the UK. However, we are looking at other international markets at the moment, um, trying to figure out how we can actually enter those as well. Um, our experience of the US has been very positive, um, and so that's that's given us an impetus to go to other areas. And then also just adding to the the suite of SME products that we offer. So. At the moment in the UK, we offer unsecured and secured loans to businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to offer loans specifically secured on property. Um, and we hired a, a very senior person, a guy called Luke Juice, who used to head up real estate lending for small businesses at, at um, Barclays to do that in the UK. Um, and we're looking at other verticals, asset finance, equipment finance, that we, okay. can, we can expand our offering into as well. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming by, Samir. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay. Okay, last up on our tour of London is uh, Zopa. Giles Andrews is the CEO there and a co-founder. They are the oldest running P2P lending platform in the world. They started in 2005 and uh, Giles has been around since the very beginning and uh, had a very interesting conversation with him. Okay, so I'm here with Giles Andrews, the CEO of Zopa in, uh, in the Zopa offices here in London. Um, welcome to the podcast, Giles. Good morning, Peter. Okay. So we um, want to just give our listeners a bit of background. Can you just describe Zopa, how it works? We know that you were the very first peer-to-peer lender to launch, but just describe the model that you have. So Zopa is a, is a marketplace which connects lenders and borrowers, lenders who have some spare cash, want a better return on that cash than uh, is offered by traditional asset classes, I suppose, principally competing with savings. And, and we create um, better value loans for, for borrowers who we think have a very high propensity and likelihood to repay. So in the sort of horrible financial parlance, that makes them more prime than less prime. Right. Okay. Um, but the basic model, the idea of the model is to provide great value to both both sets of users. So, so better return on, on cash, on savings and, and, and better value loans. So then who, who are your investors? Who's coming to Zopa to put them on? So today, our retail, our retail, our investors are our retail lenders. And um, uh, with the small exception of um, one very large institution lending on our platform, which is called um, the UK government. Uh, <laughs> right. So with the exception of them who, who've given us some money to lend 
in a in a very narrow niche of of, of our offering, so lending money to um, to sole traders for business purposes. Right. Um, so the, the government had a, a piece of a, a, what's called a business finance partnership available for alternative lenders, but not uh, for retail use. So we couldn't lend, we couldn't make consumer loans out of it. Right. But you know, it represents a, you know, a fraction of one percent of, of our business. So the rest of the business is exclusively funded today by by retail lenders, um, who I think I can say confidently are. <laughs> Viewing it as an alternative to a savings product in in most cases, we obviously can't describe ourselves as a savings product because we're not a bank, right? And we don't offer the um, FSCS guarantee, which in the UK is an insurance scheme. I'm sure you have some yeah, of them yeah, we do, done yeah. by the FDIC, mm-hmm. um, which protects retail lenders from from bank collapse. So, so, um, so it's not a savings product. It is not without all risk. It's not without any risk, but um, um, it, it, it it conforms more closely. To a savings profile than a than a more typical investment profile. Okay, so what and so people um, let's just talk about the loans themselves. You know, people borrowing different loan terms. What what sort of what's the loan terms are two, three, four, five years. Okay. Um, the average um, you can borrow anything from a thousand pounds to twenty thousand pounds. The average today is just about seven. Okay, and the typical loan use is to either buy something like a car or a, a, a significant home improvement like a bathroom or a kitchen or to pay off more expensive credit card debt. Okay. And what, what's the interest rate range on those loans? Well, from as low as 4.5%. Okay. Um, so the UK has become very, very competitive for large consumer loans in, in the primary segment. And that's been driven to some extent by previous bank action um, to provide very cheap liquidity to banks to make consumer loans. We say stop now, but, but, but there's still money washing through that system, funding very cheap mortgages and cheap um, consumer loans by banks. So we obviously haven't had any of that money, and our interest rates range up to the to the teens. Okay, okay. So so who who are you competing against apart from the other peer to peer lenders? Where well, what are the other options for borrowers? Banks. So so the the UK financial services industry is much more concentrated than the US. Right. And um, personal loans as a category, which I suppose doesn't exist in an identical manner in the US. No, it doesn't. Yeah. But there's about twenty billion pounds of new personal loans written each year. So it's an existing quite large category, and ninety-seven percent of that is written by banks. Okay. So there are no alternative lenders within that that group, and when I say banks, there are five of them. Um, right. Um, <laughs> so so it's incredibly concentrated. We also compete, obviously, against credit card companies, but in many cases, with a few exceptions, like you know the Capital Ones and MBNAs of this world, in most cases, the credit card companies are also the banks. Right. Um, right. So so again, a more concentrated competitor set than, than in the US. So how, how do your rates compare for, compare with the banks for, for someone going to go well, on a personal loan? Typically, on a risk-adjusted basis, they're about the same or slightly cheaper. Really? Okay. So so we, we aim to provide a price advantage. It's obviously hard when you move outside of the pure prime world, which is directly comparable because you can see it on financial aggregator sites like Money Supermarket, which is, I suppose, the equivalent of a bank rate right. .com in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, once you move out of that world into slightly less prime, it's very hard to compare apples with apples. Right. But 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 our best intelligence is that we're we're, we're typically slightly cheaper than banks. Okay. Okay. We also offer some um, some advantages uh, over over bank loans that people can repay their loans at any time, either in full or in part, without any penalty, and that contrib- contributes to sort of virtuous circle of attracting the most creditworthy people because creditworthy people typically think they're going to repay their loan early. Right, um, and they know that there's a reasonable cost associated with doing so from a bank, and we've also, you know, pleasingly, 
you know, in, in uh, one customer service awards, you know, we won personal loan provider of the year four years in a row mm-hmm. against the bank. So while we use an innovative business model to deliver the loan, the actual right. loan product stacks up incredibly well and our customer service in traditional terms is, wins awards against our competitors. So that's got to help because I, I, I was thinking, you know, as, as we said before we started recording, you guys get a lot of great press. And is that, do you find your brand has some awareness now in the in Some, the but, but, but pretty limited. Yeah. Um, some and growing. Right. Um, but although we've been around for nine years, we've never invested any money in building our brand beyond, beyond doing a little PR. Right. Um, and, and so the brand awareness we have is a function of, of, of PR, press and broadcast. But I think over time, um, the business will, will start to invest more money in building its own brand through more traditional means. Right. Right. So then let's, so what, um, can you just talk about like loan volumes? What, what did you do last year in total, total? So we did about, we did just under 200 million pounds of, of, of originations last year. Okay. Which was up 120 odd percent over the year before. Right. What, what's your prediction for 2014? Uh, we're targeting half a billion this year. Wow. Which is, you know, slightly, slightly faster growth than we achieved, like not significantly higher growth than sure. we achieved last year. But our growth has been accelerating, which is what gives us the confidence that we think we can achieve that sort of volume. Okay. And so what, uh, on the investor side, so what, what are the, like you say, you offer two, three, four or five year loans. What are, what do the investors gravitate towards? Well, there's some premium attached to lending longer, right. um, which I think is, is based on, on the, you know, the pure sort of economics of bond yield curves. I mean, if so people, people believe that interest rates are likely to go up, I wouldn't disagree with that, then we'll like to go up and down. Right. Therefore, there is some sort of premium for tying your money up for longer. Right. Um, and I think, therefore, it just plays as a purely individual choice as to, as to where, you want, where you sit on that. Um, so currently, there's a premium of about 90 basis points for lending over five years compared to lending over three Okay. Uh, our borrower demand is slightly higher in the five-year world, hmm. and therefore, hopefully, our, our lender supply is slightly higher too. And how, how are those loans performing, like five-year relative to three-year? I know you probably haven't had many mature, but you've you know, you've been around a while. How are those? So no, our credit our credit performance is not very different. Um, so we don't believe there's any greater risk associated with default. Okay. From writing five-year business, I mean the life. Interestingly, if you take the lifetime bad debt rate. Predicted bad debt rate in the five-year markets is slightly higher, which you'd expect because, yeah. you know, generally speaking, defaults occur because something happens to someone, they lose their job or some, some other problem occurs in their life. So the longer the loan's out for, the likely, the greater the sure. So, the, so the, the sort of total lifetime expected bad debt is slightly higher. But then if you annualize that, which after all is the calculation you need to do to work out what adjustment the lifetime bad debt has on your annual Interest rate, right? Then, then actually, they're similar or slightly lower annualized bad debts in the, in the longer markets in the short. Hmm. Interesting. And 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 you're probably aware from 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 our stats. I mean, our bad debts are tiny. Right. I was um, going to get to that. I mean, uh, coming from the US perspective, we look at the, the UK, all of the UK, specifically, particularly you guys, staggeringly low default rates. Um, can you just what, tell the audience what your annual or what your what your default rate is in, on your loan book annualized? Well, so so we reckon the the annualized default rate on our loan book is probably about fifty basis points. So in other words, if you across the portfolio, the amount you'd have to price to cover the risk of bad debt is right. about fifty basis points. If you measure it in actual terms over the last three years. And our default rate's only about 20 basis points. Okay. But that obviously reflects the fact that more of the business, as we've been growing, as any growing credit business exhibits, if more of the business is more recent, it hasn't had a chance to default yet. Sure. So it's always 
slightly difficult to talk about yeah. what's happened in the last week, but it's, it's a very small number. Yeah. 20 basis points is a very small number. So with that in mind, I was curious when you guys, you, you introduced... I, I, can tell you, I can just give you a bit of background as to one of the reasons why that, that is developed that okay. way. So one, I think because we were the first people to do this in the world, we were really nervous of, or we were really, really anxious to try and create a, an impression of trust and solidity around the business. Right. Um, so if you compare our offering in 2005 with, say, for example, Prosper's in 2006, where they took a completely different view... Mm-hmm. Where they were, they were keen to grow the business fast and aggressively, and and actually, as many people in, in the lending business did in two thousand and six, targeted the subprime world. Right. We didn't. We we thought about it. I mean, there was a clear just clear choice. You know, where do you want to target your lending? And, and we targeted the very prime world because we wanted to. While the idea of peer to peer lending might land as a bit weird to some people, lending money to strangers and expecting to get it back, mm-hmm. we thought one of the things that would be helpful in in growing trust in the sector would be that. You know, in the vast majority of cases, these loans repaid, and we all know from our sort of um, you know, behavioural economics that we all react much more negatively to losses than we do positively to, to right. profits. Right. And what we didn't want was there to be a noise around default, 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 and you wouldn't need very high levels of default to create a lot of noise. Particularly since we diversify lenders, you know, people would be likely in their broad portfolio to have picked up default. Sure, sure. Plus. You know, in a, in a new business, defaults require quite a lot of management and they require quite a lot of infrastructure to chase up and collections and all that kind of stuff. Right. And we were keen not to invest that much money in that side of the business mm-hmm. up front. So if you contrast that with someone like Prosper, who similarly didn't invest in, in that back end and suffered, I think, tremendously from the noise from disappointing lenders and perhaps disappointing lenders as much around what they then did or didn't do. Right. Um, as, I mean, you were an early prosper lender, mm-hmm. um, so you're familiar with, with what I'm describing. And I think so. I think that was undoubtedly the right plan with hindsight, because I think it created a great deal of trust that we lent money to people and, and they repaid it. We also have a tax problem in the UK, which, which isn't mirrored in the US. And the tax problem is that a, a retail consumer lender can't offset losses against the interest they earn. Right. And if you look at if you look at lending in a very prime space, say you're lending at a gross return of 5%, you pay tax on 5%, and then you suffer maybe you know, 10, 20 basis points of, of loss. It doesn't really matter. You're wasting the tax, if you like, on that 10 or 20 basis points of loss. It's not really significant. If you, uh, if you move into the, 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 the less prime world and say you're lending money at 15% and you're paying tax on 15%, you might be a high rate taxpayer paying 45% tax. So that takes you down to 8 could easily have credit losses of 8% and even 9% right. on a 15% loan. And you can't deduct those losses. No. So, so you're then left yeah. with a positive pre-tax return mm-hmm. and a negative post-tax, or low or negative post-tax return. Right. So that very much steered us down the route that actually, you know, apart from a very small segment of the population, it doesn't pay tax. You know, retired people, perhaps, or uh, you know, actually it didn't make economic sense for Zopa lenders to be lending in, in in, in risky markets. Interesting. I haven't heard that argument. That, that's, that makes complete sense. So but one thing I want to talk about is the you, you introduced the Zopa safeguard last year, yeah. which is sort of the provision fund or whatever for um, protect lenders against losses. It's in, I mean, the question that I always want to answer is that if your default rates are 0.2 or say the annualized 0.45, was there a demand for, no. for that? No, there wasn't. Um, <laughs> so uh, why do it? Well, I think so. So our existing customers, so no, there was no demand at all for it. However, I think it makes a description of risk easier for right. new customers. Yeah, and actually, 
and, and it, ironically, um, the, the, the main reason we launched the, the Safeguard product was to solve the tax problem. So, so it, it was the enabler to allow us to, to move into slightly higher risk lending without penalizing our lenders because the lenders are getting a net return. Yeah. And therefore, the amount they get is the amount they're taxed on and, and, and you solve the tax problem. Right. Um, now, we've been campaigning for the tax problem to be solved in more traditional ways. I changed the tax legislation for some time and I'm optimistic that at some point that will happen, but, but we weren't prepared to wait for that. Right. So that was uh, you know, a, a main motivation um, for, for, for launching Safeguard. And another one was to reorganize the way we the marketplace works and to, in our view, make the marketplace more efficient. Mm-hmm. And, and prior to Safeguard, it was very natural and reasonable for consumers to say, I only want to lend into that market. And it might have been one of the high-risk markets or it might have been one of the low-risk markets because that was their choice. And, and they, they may have said, I only want to lend in the very low-risk market it's because I'm a high-risk taxpayer. Right. Um, and it doesn't make sense for me to lend in that. Or maybe I'm actually just very, very conservative. And if you show me the safest thing I can do on your platform, that's what I want to do. And then maybe some other people who said, actually, I want the most exciting return I can get on your platform. And actually, what that meant was that capital gets allocated on the marketplace with no concept of actually where the demand is. Right, so, 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 so why, would, why wouldn't everybody go to the high-risk pool then if they're going to have those, if, they're, if they're protected from the... Well, so that's the point. So, so by creating Safeguard, you're saying to the guys who are both taxpayers or high-rate taxpayers, even worse, or the most conservative, we're saying, right, there's no reason for you not to lend in the high-risk markets now, right? right? Because we've solved that top problem for you. So then the next obvious thing is, right, so everyone's going to do that um, because there's no there's no increase in risk. So therefore, you can't you have to stop them doing that. Right, okay. Um, so, so, so what we did in Safeguard was take the opportunity to say to our lenders, we will deliver you a, a blended return from a basket of loans. Okay. And we will manage we believe more efficiently the allocation of capital to the markets where it is demanded rather than relying on, right. on, on, on lenders to do that with, a, you know, with imperfect information. And you know, there are times when markets actually can work more efficiently with some intervention around where, 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 where funds are allocated sure. best. So then can investors opt in or opt out? No, because it only works if they can't. But yeah, because because if, if they have the opportunity to opt in and out, then that, that leads to potential gaming. Right. Um, so, so no, so the, the, so the, the, another actual motivation behind all of this, and the, the two were sort of very much thought of together. Safeguard wasn't developed in isolation, just as simply a Safeguard Fund. It was developed as a tool that allowed us right. to reorganize the marketplace, and that's why it actually was quite a big project rather than just a very simple yeah. fund structure, right. um, and why we think actually it's so innovative. And it, it works on the basis that everybody does it, but it also allowed us terrific opportunity to simplify what we did. To, to the outside world, you know, there's huge amounts of evidence in, in, in across all types of e-commerce that choice actually is a burden to consumers and typically lowers conversion. Right. And what we found since we launched Safeguard was that the recruitment of new lenders went up and they funded more money. And we don't think that's because we took away risk. I think a lot of it's because we made the thing so much easier. Right. So the choices you have when anyone's open now are, do you want to lend in up to three years or up to five years? Do you want to reinvest your funds as they come back, as repayments come back in? Do you want to automatically reinvest them? And how much money do you want to lend? And that's it. 
right? So the overwhelming evidence from users is that they think that that's a far simpler and more straightforward process. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So then um, that sort of segues into my next question, which, you know, when you, when we, we chatted two years ago for a, uh, an article on Lend Academy and at the time you said you were very much focused on the retail investor and you didn't see the institutional investor really be playing much of a part. And uh, at the All Fly conference a couple of days ago, you said that you're now open to institutional investors and welcoming them. So, so what changed and how, um, you know, and, and are you still focused on the retail investor? So, uh, so in some ways, nothing's changed. And in some ways, some things have changed. So the thing that, the thing that hasn't changed is that I believe, one of the major reasons for creating SOPA in the first place was to provide a, a better financial product for retail consumers. Mm-hmm. So we believe that retail consumers in this country are really badly served for their opportunity to invest in financial products and, and probably worse than the United States. Right. So the asset classes that are available to retail consumers in the UK are putting money in a bank in a variety of different flavors, either instant access or some kind of savings bond, but call it a savings product, buying stocks and shares, and UK consumers are far less likely to directly own stocks and shares than Americans. So the, the man on the street doesn't typically own any stocks and shares directly, might indirectly through a company pension scheme or something like that, right. but doesn't go out and buy British Telecom shares on the whole. And thirdly, their house. And they're the three big asset classes. There are yep. all sorts of other asset classes available to high net worth and sophisticated investors, but that's not who we built over for. We thought there was a glaring opportunity, a glaring hole for someone to get a better return than offered by banks that's less volatile, less scary, and easier to understand than stocks and shares, mm-hmm. and less hassle to buy another house. Right. Actually, the number of people who buy buy to let property is, is, is pretty low. So I, I, I believe strongly that, that the platform should remain uh, uh, very strongly retail-focused. And I think that ultimately leads to a more interesting business right. and, and potentially a, a more valuable business. Well, how well, things that have changed are two years ago, we were growing relatively nicely, but sort of probably slightly less than 100% a year. And through... PR we were achieving and general sort of organic growth and recommendation, not through any marketing because we've never marketed to our lender base at all. Um, we were recruiting lenders at least as fast, if not faster, than we were recruiting borrowers. So the supply-demand balance was slightly in, 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 in favor of, of retail lender capital. Hmm. So the priority was to grow the borrower business um, and, and, if you like, catch up. I think what's changed is that we achieved that priority, right? And we grew faster last year than we have any other year since you know the early days of the company, the very early days of the company, where you're growing from nothing. And so any growth looks very, very high. And we managed to grow the borrower base slightly faster than the saver base. Mm-hmm. And we're now in a sort of state of probably quite close to equilibrium. But we believe we could lend more uh, if we could grow the the, the 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 capital side of the business a little bit faster. And I think institutions can play an interesting role in, in helping us do that. I think another thing has changed, which is that the yield requirements of institutions has come down mm-hmm. in that two-year period, perhaps driven by you know, the global financial situation and, and, and the lack of yield generally in things, and also perhaps driven by our friends in the United States who've done a terrific job in showing institutions that this is an interesting asset class, that they've done a lot of hard work, if you like, in educating people mm-hmm. um, and, um, and, and and making what we do seem more interesting and more appealing. So, so I think the opportunity to re- to recruit sensibly priced institutional money is now greater than it was 
when I spoke to you two years ago. Okay. So are you are you primarily looking at UK based institutional investors or continental Europe, US? Who's who's coming to you? People are coming to us from all over. Um, it is easier for us to deal with UK money, and that's for all sorts of boring tax reasons. Right. Um, it's um, so 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 we we currently have a requirement to 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 source money from a UK entity. It's certainly not beyond foreign institutions' abilities to set up UK entities in order to do it, and a number are considering it. Right. But but we we would have to, as it stands at the moment, withhold tax, so effectively deduct tax at source uh, for money that's received from offshore, while we don't have to uh, from money that's received onshore. Right. Now, it may well be that the offshore uh, in, in investors can recover that tax, but it, it just makes life more complicated. Right. Okay. Okay, so one final question before, um, before I let you go. We... You know, at the AltFly conference this week, there was a lot of talk about the Lending Club IPO, which surprised me considering it's actually a US company and not available really to UK investors. So but the logical question now is you you are the big the biggest player in the UK and you just took on a, another round of funding relatively recently. What what can you say about a, a Zopa IPO? Well, it's not, we don't have a plan. And, um, you know, we, we, we believe that the business has... Uh, I mean, it's extremely well funded at the moment, so we're not looking for any money. So it's better funded than it's ever been in, in, right. in its history. Uh, and the business fundamentally doesn't need any funding. You know, we're in that nice position of, of, of not really needing funding and being very well funded. So, so that wouldn't be a reason to IPO. We don't have shareholders who are today requiring liquidity. So I actually think we're better off continuing as we are uh, as a private company. Right. Um, how, how that pans out, I don't know. I mean. I think the reason everyone's interested and excited about the Lending Club IPOs is, is it's a, another stage in the industry's evolution. Right. Um, right. And um, in the same way that, you know, the Eaglewood securitization of loans last year was another stage in the evolution of the business. Yeah. Businesses turning profitable is another stage in the evolution of the businesses. Uh, all these things are terrifically helpful, I think, right. even if you don't directly participate in them yourself. So yeah. you know, we, we had nothing to do with Eaglewood securitization. In fact, nor did... Um, uh, I'm not even sure it was, was it Lending Club paper or, or Prospect paper? Lending Club. No, no. Uh, you know, I think that's generally good for the industry because it, it, it shows that it's being perceived differently. Right, okay. Great, well, thank you for your time today, Charles. Appreciate it. Okay, that concludes our UK series of interviews. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I think uh, you should have now a better feel for the UK market and those leading players. So next time we will be back in the US. Thank you very much.